You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here at Unsiloed with Kristen Berman. Kristen is the co-founder of Irrational Labs with Dan Ariely, and there's a book, basically a series of workbooks put out by Irrational Labs. It's actually a really great survey of behavioral design with some questionnaires included for those people who are involved in kind of customer-facing product management or marketing roles. But in addition, Kristen is the co-founder of the Common Sense Labs for Financial Wellness down at Duke University and also was involved in founding Google's Behavioral Science Lab back in, what, 2013, Kristen? Did I get all that right? Perfect. Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. What I find interesting about what you're doing is that you represent someone who is sitting at the transfer side of things where you're doing what I sometimes call pracademics, right? You're taking academics and you're putting it into practice. In finance, we see this all the time, right? In finance, Booth founded this company that basically took Fama and French models and basically became a billionaire out of this. And all the modern portfolio theory people have built massive businesses out of it. And here now behavioral sciences are being put to use in a very direct way in companies, particularly here in in Silicon Valley. Is it fair to say that you have one foot in academia, siphoning ideas into practice? Do you have an opportunity to also kind of siphon ideas back into academia from practice? How do you see your role as kind of a translator and an operator? That's a great question. So I do, I think we are, I think probably the world-class leaders in just bringing behavioral science into, we say, the hearts and minds of organizations looking to change behavior for good. And it's an interesting balance because companies and organizations could benefit a lot from understanding the psychology of their customers. One of the main principles of behavioral science is to experiment. And so we kind of get to convince companies or try to convince companies to do interesting experiments and learn about their customers and what drives them. We tend to be pretty successful at that, but also, you know, some of the the academic insights tend to be a little bit more interesting because you get to do like 10 conditions or five conditions. And in an organizational or industry practice, we can experiment, but we're limited by time, money, and how many engineers are willing to buy into the project. Yeah, I find that a lot of people in, in business say that the best ROA they ever get is when they kind of bring in academics to help them design experiments. And oftentimes, if you get the academics involved, you just have to give them some data and let them publish stuff. And then you get all this amazing free labor out of them. Yeah, I'll give you an example. And I just was published yesterday. So very exciting. We did a experiment with TikTok where basically the challenge was how do you reduce the spread of misinformation? Or for TikTok, it's really potentially misinformation because in videos, it's much more hard for fact checkers to understand kind of the subjective nature of videos. And so the challenge to us was how would we go about that? So we took academic insights from the leaders, Dave Rand, Gordon Pennycook, took some of their insights and then built on them in an applied manner. So put kind of one of the key insights from the field of misinformation is if you remind people about the accuracy of their own values at the point of kind of being confronted with potential misinformation that you could decrease their likelihood to share it. So we designed a small label that was on top of the video and then added a second piece to this, which was kind of another behavioral science principle, which is about friction. So if you just 
slow people down for a second. We pause, we come out of our hot state and maybe become a little bit more logical and deliberate. And so we asked a question like, are you sure you want to share? And those two interventions combined actually work to decrease the number of shares by around 24%. So here kind of is a nice example. Basically, we're taking kind of academic insights, building on them in an applied manner, and then releasing something publicly to hopefully have other people build on it, right? The whole kind of goal of academic knowledge and insights is that we're kind of contributing to a greater good of understanding in social science. It's the human condition. In other fields, it's other domains. So we publish and we'll be doing webinars. And so it's kind of a nice little example of how companies can get on board with experimentation and really learn something and move the field forward. If you go back 20, 30 years ago, I remember when I was in business school, when it came to management, when it came to marketing, people were relying a lot on gut. They were relying on just so stories. They were relying on almost rumors and innuendos and best practices that had evolved over time. And, and now, of course, companies are much more receptive to analytics. They're more receptive to experimentation, more interested in academic research. And some people think of this as sort of a, a cultural shift. Do you think of it as a cultural shift or do you just think of it as, well, heck, we've got so much more data available. Back in the day, you, you didn't really have the data. You didn't have the tools available for experimentation. The academic research wasn't there. How much is a cultural shift? How much is it really just a technological shift that's enabled a cultural shift? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think in general, even if we think about the field of behavioral economics, it's it's a relatively young field. And I almost look at kind of product development and innovation as a relatively young kind of how we're designing software online, learning from customers, iterating, launching something new, learning again. This is all still relatively new kind of in the scheme of if we just zoom out. And so I think also what's happened is just we've gotten better and evolved at how to learn. I don't think we're there yet. I think a lot of at least the teams we see rely heavily on data without insights on kind of the theory of why somebody would mm -hmm. be doing something. So very rarely do we see product teams or marketing teams have a strong mental model of how their customer really uses their product and why they use their product. So you can look at data, but in order to really build a product that works, we think these types of mental models are helpful. And so I think we're getting better at kind of this customer-driven development, if you will, or understanding why people behave. But I think we have still have a ways to go, at least from our lens. Yeah, well, I like that. So if you're a strict data scientist, then you can't see why you would need a mental model. Why would you need a theory? Why can't you just say, well, I'm just going to keep messing around until I figure out what works. I'm just going to you know, look for correlations and then just chase after those correlations. Why do you need a mental model? Why do you need a theory to guide your inquiry? Maybe in a future world, if you have enough sample size like Facebook and you have enough engineers as Facebook, you can kind of get good at rapid testing random ideas. And maybe that's the world we'll move to where we can just test any idea and you have enough resources and people to do it. I think we're still in a world where basically we still have to have a theory of why somebody takes an action. So if I were to look at Peloton or a Fitbit type app, they're going to give me data, let's say, about my exercise behavior. And the question there, you know, most apps are giving me great, lovely, perfect graphs of how I've done over time. And the question is like, what will I do with that information? In a behavioral science world, we say people not only have to understand the information, they have to appreciate how it fits into their lives and then take an action to act on the information. So if you say I'm not working out as much, I then have to figure out how I'm going to work out more, what I enjoy about working out, what I don't. And I think many times if we just keep on this exercise app example, we're getting data about our health. And it's very clear the engineers don't have a mental model of how we would use that data. Otherwise, they would help us take action because the real gap is not necessarily understanding that I'm working out less. That's kind of obvious. 
people probably know this, the real gap will be helping them actually do it, right? And so I think that's what I mean by having a mental model is when you really kind of dive into what it would take for somebody to change. This is obviously very difficult and we need to think more deeply about how to help design those interventions. Yeah, I think one of the key insights of behavioral economics is that people don't do what they know they should do. I guess some people believe that all you needed to do to get people to improve their financial health or even their physical or mental health was to learn what works and and what doesn't work, what should they do and what shouldn't they do. But I think that's only because people assumed that they would do this, but empirically it doesn't seem to be borne out. That seems to be one of the key insights. Yeah. Why is that? Tell us more about how that discovery came about and what are some of the more important implications of that. Yeah. So one of the basic assumptions or kind of hypothesis that behavioral science makes is, and that is shown to to be true in multiple domains, is that information by itself is just not enough to move the needle. So particularly in the financial domain, if we just give people information about, let's say, FICO, is it enough for them to change their credit score? And by and large, and this is a paper from John Lynch and Daniel Fernandez, who started off this kind of train of thinking that summarized close to 200 papers that found a negligible effect, almost zero. I think the latest one says 0.2% change on behavior when I give you information about your finances. So I tell you about compound interest that does not mean you'll actually invest money. Now, this does not mean we're stupid. We can learn. So if I tell you about compound interest, you will learn about compound interest. The gap here is the doing, right? The gap here is not learning. And so that's really where behavioral science comes in. It says there's an intention action gap. We may know something about diet and exercise or about investing money, but actually doing it is a problem. Another example that's kind of typically used is in the health fields, there was a really large campaign called Five a Day, where really tried to get out the word about eating five fruits and veggies a day and was very successful. So the campaign raised U.S.-based awareness about this. I believe this was done in the 90s through marketing, radio, and just from a marketing perspective, if your awareness raises, I forget, I think the numbers was 7% to 20% of Americans now knew about five a day. And then you look at the charts as well, obviously then consumption of fruits and veggies went up. And this is just not true. So no, the consumption of fruits and veggies did not go up. If anything, researchers argue that it went down during that period of time. And so for that, it's quite clear, right? I can teach you that you need an eggplant, but how the heck do you cook an eggplant to taste good? Cow flour, same thing. Like these things are not obvious. I just learned to cook an eggplant recently during COVID and you should be putting breadcrumbs on it and frying it a bit. All these things take a bit of steps. And so the real problem is not knowing that you should eat the eggplant. It's figuring out what to do with it. And again, this is kind of where behavioral science comes in and says, this is what we need to help people with versus just giving them the information. I mean, I've been teaching behavioral economics now for 20 years or so. And and I think a lot of people would say, well, isn't everything that you say just obvious? I mean, the ancient Greeks, they knew about weakness of will. They knew about self-discipline, even had their own word for for weakness of will, right? It was so well known. So it's only that these weird economists that existed for a little blip in in human history who, who thought that for some reason effort didn't matter and a reward didn't matter and laziness was not a real thing. But I think it's not just knowing this, it's also knowing exactly kind of the mechanics of it and the details of this. Could you talk a little bit about, in particular, friction? I mean, friction is something that all the consumer-facing apps like Facebook have spent a lot of time thinking about, but you've also been thinking about it in terms of how to promote good, right? So behavioral design, nudging, and so forth. What, what are some of the key insights that you keep coming back to over and over again when you deal with companies? 
Yep. Great question. So um, I think folks tend to underestimate, even though we know that friction decreases the likelihood to take action. And by the way, we can caveat that because we also know that sometimes friction increases in our endowment to something. But by and large, we understand that friction is decreases the likelihood to take action. And people know this. This is not revolutionary for most people. And yet you look at their sign-up flows, you look at their process and the products they're building, and you say, of course they don't know this. So one time we worked with a team and we tried to convince them to remove a field. The field just was part of their sign-up flow and it says, please describe your business. And a very simple question to a business that was signing up for a product. Obviously, the business should know about themselves. This is not rocket science. And yet we thought, this is tough. This is friction. They have to type something. The company just could not believe this. And so we did, well, we tried to convince them. And so did a study where we just put against each other five different ways to ask that question, a drop down, a fill in the blank. And then the last one was, of course, this open text. And it took 40 seconds for people to do the open text, but on average, less than four seconds to do all the other questions. At that point, the company agreed with us and they removed the field and increased page over page conversion by over 30%. So the idea that basically friction matters and we think is obvious, but people don't appreciate how much it matters. I'll give you another example. We worked with out of Common Sense Lab, a credit union called Latino Community Credit Union, and they really wanted, like most credit unions or banks do, more deposits, people to save money. And so, you know, our team went in and said, okay, let's do what we do, which is a behavioral diagnosis. We identify key behavior. This is kind of part of the behavioral design process. By the way, most companies would go in here and and do the traditional path, which is probably saying, this is a really nice challenge. Let me ask customers questions about how they want to save and why they aren't saving. Let me interrogate them about their current habits. Do they want to go on a vacation? Are they saving for a wedding? In behavioral science, is just not what you do. You start really by understanding the environment of decision-making. You start by kind of taking a magnifying glass to every single step that somebody does. And so when you do this in this banking context and you're trying to increase deposits, and let's say for us, we were increasing deposits at the point of cashing your paycheck. So you're going into the teller, you're handing them a check and you're saying, I'd, I'd like the full amount back. And we wanted people to say, no, no, I don't want the full amount back. I'd like to deposit either a percentage or a fixed amount. And when you evaluate that environment, you find that there's a massive piece of friction in between the person and depositing the check. And if you're listening to this, think about what this is. If you've gone to a bank recently, hopefully don't go to the bank as much as you use your mobile deposits, but it's a deposit slip that you literally have to, if you want to save any money at the bank, you need to fill out a deposit slip before you go to the teller. Now, obviously this is just a form, it's not hard, but it's friction. And so in a perfect world, you would just remove that form and you'd say, let's see if now people save because they can just hand the check to the teller and tell the teller what they want. Legally, we couldn't do this. You can't remove the deposit slip, or at least not yet, or not in the credit union we were working with. So we actually did something different where we made everybody fill out this deposit slip. So if you wanted to save or not want to save, you had to fill out the deposit slip. And this is actually a good representation of of most problems, which is we don't know if people don't want to save or they just don't want to take an action, right? And so for this, and this is like a confounded problem where it could be that people aren't saving because they don't want to, and that's fine, or they just don't want to fill out that form and you have other people get in line in front of them. By making everybody fill it out, you can basically understand what is the case. And in our case, we had around 10% of people who chose to save, and on average, they saved around $169, which is quite substantial for this income population to save that much. Now, we say 10%, is that a lot? If you're a marketing manager or product thinker, you know 10% bump is massive. And by the way, this is only a small process change, right? Like our team didn't 
really try to convince people to save. We didn't use social proof. We didn't use like loss aversion. Like all we did was make people fill out a, a form. And by the way, the other thing is that you know, everyone who hears this is still people hate this. It's like, ah, there was a couple of support issues, but nothing that was more than anything to speak of. People don't really have this on the top of their worries. We have a lot of other things to think about when we're <laughs> going into the bank or doing life. So people were not annoyed by this as much as our intuition was, people's intuition is. Anyway, so this is the idea of friction driving some of our behaviors, even if we don't really realize how much it does. So how is this different from design thinking, really? I mean, when I think of design thinking, I think back to the days when there were these classes in engineering schools called human factors, right? And the whole purpose of the human factors class was to remind the engineers that they were also humans, right? But it seems like engineers, they're humans when they're not on the job. And then when they're on the job, they forget that there are humans out there because everybody knows that if something takes 10 clicks, they're not going to do it. And if it takes two clicks, they're going to do it. So the engineer, when they go home and they're doing their banking, like they get frustrated. But then when they go to work for the bank, they're like, why aren't people filling out the applications? What's the psychological reason why engineers forget about humanity when they show up for work? What's going on there? Yeah, I think it's really tough for people to, if we say behavioral science, we believe in this idea that we're influenced by things other than just information, just money, just time. There are other factors working on us. So like, it may be that I'm convinced to do something because I see 30 other people doing it. I think rationally, we can understand this. But for ourselves, of course not. Of course, I'm somebody who makes a decision based on time preferences and everything rational. I'm not influenced by those 30 people. That's somebody else. And so I think we tend to kind of assume when we're making these kind of product decisions or look and think about our what would we do yeah. in that situation? And when we think, what would we do? We think, of course, information would work on me. Of course, if you tell me to eat five fruits and veggies a day and I believe you and I that I would try at least, maybe I wouldn't like it, but I would try. And so I think this is a core problem of design. But back to your question of what is the difference between behavioral design and design thinking, I participated in a design thinking workshop that was trying to help low-income mothers in a Bay Area community improve their financial health. Three days, they talked to a lot of people, we all brainstormed, and they came up with, and this was part one, there was another part, they came up with saving. And it's like, this does not take you to talk to 20 low-income mothers to realize that we need an emergency savings, that they need some buffer to fall back on. By the way, then you could say, well, how would you get people to save? And now they had another part two brainstorm. And it's like, we should just be reading more papers. Like this is boiling the ocean at some level of like, we understand these things about emergency savings. We understand how to get people to do emergency savings. We have not solved the problem, but there's so many people who've thought about this and written wonderful academic RCTs about doing this, that the idea of reading, I think, is kind of one of the key differences. Mm. And I don't say this with bad intent to design thinking. I just think this is one of the things that behavioral design tends to add is a focus on kind of a rigorous focus on what has worked, what could work, and the theories behind why people are doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think the areas where we see a lot of this is in the areas that you're talking about, which have to do with kind of behavioral design for good, particularly in areas of like energy conservation. I, I see quite a bit in that space, how do you get people to use less energy? One of the examples that you mentioned in your book had to do with matching up the timing of the reward with the action. I mean, this seems like basic behavioralism, right? Back in the day, I mean, if you yell at your dog for pooping on the carpet like three days after the dog poops, it's not going to make a whole heck of a lot of difference. How do you do this reinforcement and kind of accelerate the arrival of the information? One of the examples that you used was at this dorm where people would use electricity 
And when they would use the electricity, they would have a little image of a polar bear that would start to melt or something. Can you tell us about that a little bit? I was a little uh, disturbed by that imagery. Climate change is, is very difficult in getting people to take action. I think one of the harder problems that we have, it's far in the future. If I do something, it doesn't honestly really matter. It's a collective problem. If I do something, I typically don't see the outcomes of my behavior. So even if I turn off all my lights and I recycle, like I don't see that the temperature in my area has changed. There's very little feedback for people. And so when you're designing around a problem like that, the question is, how can you fake it? right? How can you get someone to do something and then give them a positive reward immediately for doing it that may not be visible in the real world? And so in this case, and I think the study was done at Dartmouth, they really took over freshman dorms and created a competition of people turning on and off their lights. And so it wasn't that mm -hmm. we call this doing the right thing for the wrong reason. It wasn't that people actually cared about the environment. They may have cared, but this was not related to why they turned off their lights or not. They turned off their lights to win the competition against another dorm. They turned off the lights because the winning people would save the polar bear. And there was a sad face of the polar bear drowning if you didn't use as much electricity. And so those are the types of things we say right for wrong, where we're giving people kind of immediate rewards for doing something that in theory we should be so noble to do otherwise. By the way, the worst offenders of this are employee wellness plans. Employee wellness plans basically ask you to do something and then at the end of the quarter, they may give you a $50 gift card to Starbucks. And lo and behold, employee wellness plans have failed with lots of money put towards them to actually change any health outcomes. Some of that self-selection where people who are already healthy are self-selecting into the, the employee wellness plan. And some of this is just bad design where... I do something today and I, in a year, I'll, my employer, in a quarter, my employer will tell me thank you. Well, this is true of all annual performance evaluations, right? There's such a huge lag between what you do and, and then when it's recognized, if at all, and how it's rewarded or not rewarded. I think more and more companies are moving to increasingly frequent performance evaluations for that reason. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these can backfire as well. So frequent performance reviews really lovely, too frequent. And I think people forget that you're in a long-term relationship with your employer. <laughs> like sometimes you want to take risks and do things that aren't immediately for upside immediate revenue or profit. And so we, yeah, we kind of go back and forth because companies have an incentive problem and it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. We don't get immediate feedback after meetings if we talk too much or interrupted people. And yet too much feedback could cause us to solve for short-term outcomes, which may not be as pro-social as, as we'd enjoy. Right. So while academics, I think, are interested to a large extent in doing behavioral design for good, all the same techniques and tools that can be done for good can be done for uh, not so good stuff, right? Keep us addicted to our devices, keep us in the casinos longer. And so as someone who's in, in the business of coaching companies and, and coaching people on these techniques... Do you concern yourself with the uses to which these things are put? Do you see the behavioral design for good as being different in any way from behavioral design for bad? I mean, isn't behavioral design full stop? Great question. So two answers here. One, I think sometimes people like behavioral design is manipulative or whatnot. And like the reality is like our world is manipulating us. You go and you, to Amazon and they're yelling at you to buy things. You have cereals that have more sugar than candy bars. The world is working against us at this point. They figured out how to play to our temptations. 
And so we really need to think deeply about kind of this is the human condition and then design things that can help us be happier, healthier, and wealthier. And so we can kind of fight that insight that people respond to things immediately, or we can help design a world that makes us better off. And so I think people underestimate the idea of how much our world has already taken advantage of us in this way. And maybe second, you know, if you were to think about chemistry, you can have chemistry to make a vaccine or a drug that's helpful, or you can make a bomb. And so there's nuances to everything about how things operate. And so I think the world just has nuances. And so, yes, there are ways to use behavioral design for bad and unethically, and and there are ways that, that you can help people. Our team, we focus primarily on helping teams set incentives. So basically, you could argue the logistics of like, should you have four notifications or one? Should they come after people opt in with a big opt in or a small default? For us, these are all small things. The thing that we pay attention to is if someone's incentivized, like a marketing manager, design manager, incentivized for the customer outcome. And we find that most of the time, incentives, this is kind of thing where economics and behavioral science do agree, and um, incentives can drive our behavior. And so if you're incentivized to do something like active use, where you want someone to log in two or three times a day, there's no design guidelines that will fix the idea that that marketing manager, that design manager will try to put a red button and, and get me to log in. So the missing piece from the tech conversation is really what is that metric that we can measure people on to help drive outcomes that are customer forward. So we work with teams to define what that metric is for them and help them measure their their selves on it. So I think one of the areas that you've done a lot of work in is things like ego depletion and choice fatigue. So when we think about reducing frictions, a lot of times we just focus on, okay, let's shorten the amount of time it takes to do something, or let's shorten the amount of physical steps that you have to go through. But I think you really emphasize that even with this fixed amount of time and a fixed number of steps, there are difficult choices and and hard choices. And it's almost as if in the literature, they talk about having a fixed budget that you can allocate across these different choices. How do you apply that in some of your work? Yeah, great question. So there's like friction and then there's the perception of friction. So we may, even if it's not hard, we may still get overwhelmed. Many times it is hard and we get overwhelmed. Then when we're not necessarily able have the cognitive capacity to make a decision, what we do is just procrastinate that decision. So I'll give you an example. We worked with a company called Admit Hub and partnered with West Texas University where as many folks know, filling out the financial aid form, if you're a high school student or if you're a sophomore in college, you have to fill it out again for the next year. Every year you have to fill it out again is a really terrible process. It takes a massive amount of steps. Conservatively, we say over 20, but really it's much more. And this involves like asking your parents for their social security number. It involves getting their tax returns, labor a step. And so you could imagine, and research has tried to help people with this. So there's nice research says if you partner people up with somebody and have them guide them through it, that this will increase the likelihood that they apply. For our team, when we're thinking about this problem, we didn't have the the budget to partner people up with somebody. So we thought about every single step along the journey was like, could we shorten it? Could we not? And the reality is, it's again, these are fixed problems and would have taken a little bit more of the federal commitment to do anything with that. So what we did there was just attempt to remove the decision itself, right? And say like, actually, how do we help people you say, do I apply or do I not apply is actually a a big decision. And for big decisions, again, we procrastinate. So if you think about your 
Maybe you have some money they're figuring out what to do with. This is just a decision you'll make tomorrow. It's not one you'll make today. Same with the financial aid, where the decision to apply or not apply was people were putting off and missing the deadline. And so we basically texted people and said, it's part of the West Texas enrollment process. Now, the reason we did that was to remove the idea that they had to decide to apply or not apply. And in West Texas University, 90% of people already qualify for it, so they will get free money. And one of the biggest reasons that people drop out, this is nationally as well as in West Texas, was financial reasons. So you could say, Kristen, are you strong-arming people here to apply? And the reality is, no, you get this free money, and otherwise you probably will struggle at some point in your four-year career. And so when we did this and just texted them and said, hey, it's part of the enrollment process, and then we sent one reminder, and we increased the odds of people applying on time by three, which is quite substantial and kind of over if you were to scale this out, just a text message, right, reminding people and and having it be part of the application process. If you scale this nationally, around 200,000 more people would be applying for financial aid and likely get money. And I think that's kind of the promise of behavioral science is that we're picking out a point of friction. We're picking out a point where people would otherwise want to continue. We kind of go back to those confounded problems. It's not that people don't want free money. It's that they just don't want to do it today. And we try to design small ways to fix the current system. Now, in a perfect world, we'd redesign the system completely again. So I, I don't want to I want to caveat that behavioral science in that example is, is really kind of a Band-Aid for a, a problem that shouldn't really have happened, which is making these long and arduous applications, which we could apply to WIC and food stamps and other kind of social services that... If we just made easier, more people would get the benefit that they would enjoy. But in addition to changing the defaults, you, you can also kind of change the, the menu, right? You can change the, the sequence of the choices and you can change the, the arrangement of the options, right? And you can even introduce kind of decoy choices to make it easier on the choice maker, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is definitely one opportunity is a choice architecture of like, you know, this is in our online environments where we can think about forced choice or what is called enhanced forced choice. There's some nice fintech websites that say, I want to be rich or I want to be poor is kind of their opt-in or opt-out. And this helps us understand the counterfactual of our decisions. Many times, if you just say yes, you don't realize that not saying yes is also a decision as well. And so we can really change the online environment with choice architecture. We can also change the offline environment with choice architecture. So if we put M&Ms close to me and with the top off, I'll eat them. If the lid is on and they're farther away, I won't, right? If banks are closer in proximity to people, they use the ATM more, they save more. If gyms are closer to people, they go to the gym more. And so really kind of the choice architecture of our online, but also our built environment is incredibly important here. And and you kind of called out decoys and anchoring. And these are things I think that represent a general human condition, which is it's hard for us to understand the absolute value of anything. It really is about understanding the relative comparison to things. So One of our kind of classic examples is if I were to ask you and how much would you pay to spend the night at Alcatraz for folks not in the Bay is this like prison that, you know, is now defunct, but was once people had to escape from. Obviously, probably people know this from the movies, but there's a question really of how much imagine you could like be a prisoner there, fake it, you get fed the food, wear the costume, you do the things. How much is that worth to you? And very difficult for people to answer this question. The variance is very high. Some people would pay a lot. Some people would have to get paid. Well, I think the phrasing you used, if you said, how much do you have to be paid? You'd get a very different answer than how much would you be willing to pay, right? Yeah. And by the way, those cues would also cause people to answer different things. So like how we ask the question will change the answer. But for something like this, this is just very hard to understand what we should value, how we should value things. And so 
when you add decoys and we add other types of comparison to the product pages that have like three options, you're giving people a way to understand value that otherwise it's difficult, right? That we say we could really answer in a variety of ways here. It's not clear how we should answer. And so giving people anchors is of course helpful. I used to work in restaurants and there was always a dummy wine on the list. Very, very expensive wine that was, they didn't actually have it. It If someone ever ordered it, they'd just say we're out of stock, right? But that was just kind of whet everybody's appetite. I think behavioral scientists should probably think more about menu design because it would be a a lab for how people make decisions. You usually don't get somebody, you know, they're sitting down in a restaurant, they must choose something. And so, yeah, I think a nice rapid experimentation would be just to make a fake restaurant and a real restaurant with fake menus. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit of education, right? So if you think about all the things that you mentioned, whether it's frictions or delayed reward, social proof, right? All of these things could help to encourage people in the education space. The university environment hasn't changed much in thousands of years, and it wasn't really designed for having this massive scale-up of technical skill acquisition. How would you change the educational environment using the insights that you have? Have you thought about education? Have you done any projects in education? A little bit. We actually just finished an experiment on our own boot camp. So we have a behavioral economics boot camp that's eight weeks. As folks know, MOOCs are like the online courses have very low completion rates, even though they have very high quality content. And so this kind of represents the struggle of how do we evolve our university systems a little bit more. And that will obviously kind of put either things online or it just moves to different formats. And when you don't have people coming to class Monday and Wednesday for a 300-person lecture, you lose a lot of the accountability. And a discussion section in person, you lose a lot of the accountability that drives us to do anything. If we think about kind of work environments, very unlikely that we would do much if there wasn't meetings and deadlines. Having these types of accountability things is not novel. It's just how we operate. It's successfully most work cultures. I actually have not seen a, a work setting that does not have meetings. And so, you know, all the variation that work has, meetings is consistent. And so when we think about education as it's moving online, these are the types of things we want to think about is how do we add back in some of the things that we know work. In in Rational Labs, we did this experiment and we had just a self-paced course where you'd get the course and over each week, new modules open up. And then we also had another version of the course where same content, Every week, new things opened up. But instead, we told you that you were, you're starting on Monday, you're starting with other people, the course will open up, you'll get new content at the same time they do. And by the way, you have a discussion section you could attend, or Rational Labs wouldn't be there. It was just a discussion section you could kind of go to with other people taking the course. And we had, on average, people completed two more units in the cohort section than the other condition. This is, again, without us trying, really. Like, if you think about a university and how they should probably be thinking about designing their systems for how online work is done, we should really be trying. In fact, I think ASU is one of the leaders here and trying to think about kind of the future of education as they're moving online. And But we probably can't just say we're going to do the same thing we did before, especially in a COVID world. But there's a lot of room for innovation with getting people just to learn better. Well, speaking of the COVID world, I mean, we've experienced a year-long massive social experiment or a series of social experiments. Do you see anything that's happened? In, I mean, you must see a lot of stuff that's happened in the last 10 years that represents high-quality understanding of behavioral design and other examples of really poor understanding of behavioral design in terms of trying to inspire different behaviors and norms related to the pandemic? This is always hard to experiment on, and so I think it's a tough answer to kind of replicate or manifest. But norms, norms are a big one. 
not to call us sheep, but we are definitely part of a herd and we look to others for guidance on what to do. And so in the very beginning of the pandemic, I, I was driving and was driving through Oregon and stopped at a grocery store as rural Oregon. And really no one there was wearing a mask. My partner and I were the only people to wear a mask. And we felt weird. I, I looked at him, I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, this is weird. And you can basically kind of see that, that if other people were to wear a mask, it's very difficult to do in a norm environment that does not support that. I'm also from the Midwest. I go back there and again, not to throw people in Oregon or the Midwest under the bus, but you know, my family's ordering mashed potatoes and, and meatloaf and I'm here ordering a salad. It's just weird. And so you can imagine a world by which changing these behaviors as a sole actor is very difficult. That's why we kind of need a social coordination effort to do it all at once and not rely on people to kind of individually have to fight against the crowds. And so you see some of the adoption of mass was really dictated by the local, the point the local jurisdiction said something was more correlated to when people started wearing masks than when the federal jurisdiction said something. And that's kind of this behavioral contagion idea. And I think we're just seeing that the pandemic saw this a lot, like we're just products of our environment. In fact, for listeners in the Bay, if you go to Burning Man, this is the best example of how you change in a different environment. So you can take a Google engineer and drop them in the middle of the playa and they'll just act differently, right? No change to this Google engineer's preferences, attitudes, or beliefs, but we've changed their environment of decision-making. And so if you were to take somebody from a non-mask-wearing community and put them in a mask one, I think this is probably the best way to get people to adopt different behaviors. And to be fair, I'm, I'm also, it's only taken, or it's been eight months, but at least in urban environments, everyone's wearing a mask. And so, yes, there are non-urban environments where that's not happening, and maybe Miami still isn't, but by and large, mask wearing is happening. And that's incredible. People leave their house and they bring a mask. Like, what world would the universally created a new habit? And it only took eight months for us to do. Like, we definitely could have been faster. There's critiques of it. But I'm actually kind of impressed with this. Everyone leaves the house and has a mask. Yeah, I'm surprised there weren't more use of public service announcements that exploited, say, social proof, right? The CDC and some others did have ads that said, hey, you know, this is, you should do this and this is going to help people and, and so forth. But it wasn't like more and more people are doing this or most people do this or anything like that, which you would expect given all the research around social proof. Yeah. If I could do a crazy experiment, I would probably pay people to exercise outside in a community that has a higher likelihood of obesity. Visible, basically, norm setting is very important. And so if you're in a community that you don't see something happening, either because it's invisible, like savings, or because people just aren't doing it, like working out, we really have an opportunity to kind of like figure out how we can get that social norm to be much more visible. And so paying people to kind of run outside, you can imagine you see somebody running outside, you're okay, maybe I'll try it. It's not too crazy, by the way. This is really what happens in the marina. If, if you're in San Francisco, you see people running outside all the time. On Saturday mornings, if you're not in Lululemon, whatever, pants, you're the weird one. So this can work very helpful to see other people behaving well. Right now, we have sort of a vaccine shortage in a lot of areas where the demand exceeds the supply. But there are people that are saying the vaccine uptake will be inadequate. If you are trying to encourage policymakers to do things that would increase the likelihood of people taking vaccines, what kinds of steps would you recommend based on your insights? Yeah, we actually wrote like a, a little summary of the five things we would do. But I think the macro one is really pair activities with your vaccine. You get a beer with your <laughs> with your vaccine. 
actually, you just couldn't go into the bar if you didn't have a vaccine. Okay. So it's basically what people are talking about is like a vaccine pass, but it's saying if you want to go to the concert, if you want to go on a flight, if you want to go to the bar, if you want to go to the restaurant, you need the vaccine. And again, this is right for wrong. People are not getting the vaccine to save somebody else or to save themselves or getting it because they want to go to a concert. And Ticketmaster actually came out as one of the first people to say they're going to try to do this. Obviously, it operationally must be incredibly complex, but that would be kind of the macro is not to try to do small nudges, is to design the system to encourage people to get a vaccine. And then the second are these small nudges where you we would think about kind of having stickers that says, I got a vaccine, which would again get mm-hmm. kind of the social norm up there. Sadly, I haven't seen those yet. Yeah, it's kind of surprising given the voting stickers were such a big hit. Right, yeah. So I could also imagine stickers for your phone, for your car. You could imagine that you log into a restaurant Yelp thing and there's a sticker that says we vaccinated. Hmm. You could have your Uber driver say that they vaccinated. Like lots of social kind of visibility would be another one. And then I think just obviously like people are going to forget or not get their second vaccine is, I mean... There's going to be a percentage of people who do this immediately. There's going to be a percentage who just won't do it. And then in the middle, we are all forgetful beings. And so we need to be really systematic about the reminders, the implementation intentions versus getting people to to commit to when they're going to come back, pre-scheduling people. If it was me, I'd probably just have pre-scheduled. You take everyone who's from 72 to 75 and you pre-schedule them an appointment that they know that they can go into. So I, I think we have not made these the basic behavioral principles enacted, which is just make it easy. Would you recommend some kind of dashboard that shows how many people are doing it, where they're doing it, and where you, you stand relative to other people your age or, or where your community stands relative to other communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine kind of a competition. You know, I, I actually wish the U.S. took a different tact and was like trying to compete with other countries and how fast we could get it done for a point of pride. Like we value independence, and so we're going to get our vaccines so we can go back to being independent. So I think there's probably some competition angle here. I don't know necessarily about a dashboard. I would more have celebrities just continue to get vaccinated and celebrities that are kind of in communities that may not be as pro-vaccine. We worked with TikTok on misinformation. You can see people, how they react. There's like a lot of memes going around about what would happen if you get the vaccine and these should just be taken down. The idea of people dying after they get the vaccine is medical misinformation. TikTok's working on this, but generally we don't want that visibility of like, I will have a medical death after this thing. We need to have the social norms be really about being pro-social and helping other people and really getting back to freedom. So final question. I always try to encourage my students to get good at reading scholarly articles, right? I hope that when they graduate from an MBA program that they can actually go to New England Journal of Medicine, they can go to American Economics Review, they can actually go into the stuff itself. Next best thing, read Harvard Business Review and and so forth and listen to podcasts. How do you recommend that business people and practitioners in different disciplines, engineers and so forth, engage with the academic community? Is it better to go direct to the source and start reading articles? Is it helpful to have a coach, someone like Irrational Labs, to boil it down for you? And what's the best way to kind of stay abreast with what's happening out there in social sciences? Yeah, great question. So Danny really says this nice. He's like, you wouldn't start a biotech company without hiring a biologist. He's like, I think if you're going to start a consumer behavior company, you need to hire a behavioral scientist or somebody who knows consumer behavior. So I think at the macro level, we need to appreciate more kind of the complexities of the human mind. And 
either yourself kind of as you're suggesting invest in this knowledge or bring somebody on your professional team. And then for folks who are interested in doing this, I think one of the things that I've personally struggled with when I first started working with Dan is really the path into behavioral economics as a PhD. And industry, I think not only doesn't prioritize, but sometimes discriminates against PhDs because there's kind of a lack of experience within the workplace, which is fair. And so there wasn't a path for me to do this. So I apprenticed under Dan for five years, just really doing the field work. And that's why at our team, we created this boot camp is because there just isn't anything out there. Now, recently, there's a program at Penn that's very nice. There's LSU that has a program. But really, for people who want to dip their toes, we did this boot camp because it's like eight weeks self-paced. It just brings you through all the material with like applied practices. And if the boot camp is not for you, I would also just say to read. I think when you read more, you realize what you don't know. And so the idea of reading is more to understand kind of the lay of the land. And if you're studying health, just Google like if medication adherence meta-analysis. And there's tons out there. And I'm sure people are in this field know that, but I just think it's a nice reminder. Google Scholar is, is your friend. Yeah, I, w- I would say the boot camp for us is kind of a helpful starting place for people, but reading in general is helpful. And if I could recommend, I think there's kind of the classic behavioral science books. You have like Danny Rayleigh's Predictably Rational, you have Cialdini, you have Nudge. There's just a ton of other ones that have come out recently too that are from really lovely authors. Wendy Wood has a book on habits. Robert Frank has lovely books on social comparison and relativity. My friend Logan Uri just wrote a book on the behavioral science of dating, how not to die alone. And so just tons of good material out there. Yeah, far more than any one person can read, although I'm I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> so, yeah. so thanks so much, Kristen. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate it. And everybody, Irrational Labs, the book, the boot camp, the company, the founder, Kristen Berman. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is great. Hope to see you soon in person here in the Bay Area. Yes. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.